I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. This week on the podcast, we have a special episode with Felicia Lo Wong. Felicia is a designer and entrepreneur from Vancouver, Canada, who started her company Sweet Georgia Yarns in 2005. Sweet Georgia Yarns is a hand-dyed yarn company that makes stunningly gorgeous and deeply saturated colors of yarn and fiber for knitters, spinners, and weavers. Felicia is also the host of the Sweet Georgia podcast, and you can hear her interview of me on the latest episode of her podcast, which we'll also share in the show notes. Felicia, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. Can you start out by introducing yourself and sharing how you found your way towards a love of textiles and fiber arts? Sure. So my name is Felicia Lo Wong, and I'm the founder and creative director of Sweet Georgia Yarns. Um, and that is a hand-dyed yarn company that we're in Vancouver in Canada here. And I started in the fiber arts when I was a kid. I think I first started by watching my mom cut and sew her own dress. And uh, we were very, very young at the time. I think I was like six or something like that. And I watched her lay out this fabric on the floor and it was hot pink. It was like that fuchsia hot pink that we have for our logo. And um, it was after dinner. She had a paper pattern and she was cutting it all out on the floor of our living room. And I, ju- I just, that memory stuck in my head for so long. And so there was extra fabric that was left over from her project. And I used that and I snuck down into the basement and I used her sewing machine and I made myself a little skirt, not knowing how the sewing machine worked and um, not actually asking my mom. I just took the manual and read the manual and tried to figure it out. Of course, I I made the skirt and then I jammed her machine and then it was broken. (laughs) So they had to go and replace the machine. But then very soon after that, um, I had the opportunity to basically send away, like you do those uh, self-addressed stamped envelopes. I don't think they exist anymore, but like you basically have uh, an envelope that is addressed to yourself and you put a stamp on it and then you mail it away to a company so that they can send you printed materials back and they don't have to pay for any postage. You've paid the postage, right? So I sent away for uh, Learn to Knit booklet. And so somewhere in elementary school, I taught myself how to knit. And my mom had some knitting needles that were lying around. And we had some yarn that was like acrylic. And she took me to Kmart and helped me get get some more yarn. But I basically just, yeah, flipped through this book and learned how to do the knit stitch and the purl stitch and all that stuff. Hmm. And, and where did that take you from there? What was the first thing that you knitted? Oh, I was addicted. I was addicted to figuring out how it all worked. And um, I wanted to just learn everything about how to do everything. So I did, you know, the knit stitch and purl stitch, learned how to do color work, went to the library a lot to get like library books about how to do fair isle, how to knit in the round, but I didn't have very many materials and I didn't have a lot of tools. So I remember using like pickup sticks, like toy pickup sticks to try to do circular knitting. Um, And I was just really curious about how it all worked. I finally, by the time I was in grade seven, I knit my first sweater um, and it was just a really super simple stockinette crew neck sweater that was knit in pieces and sewed them together and all that kind of stuff. And I, I think I have it still somewhere. 
That's great. And how about weaving? When did you learn to weave and when did that become a passion and a love? I learned to weave quite late, I think. I was probably in my late 20s when I learned to weave. Well, actually, no. I mean, my parents did give me a little toy loom. I got a Fisher-Price toy loom when I was a kid. And so that's basically a rigid head loom. So I used that and, you know, wove some very preliminary primitive fabric with some acrylic yarn. Um but then just put that away. I don't, I don't know why I just put that away. It was just like, it was a bigger piece of equipment and the knitting was much more easy and portable. And I always had knitting next to my bed. Um, but learning to weave for real happened probably in my late twenties after I had learned how to spin yarn and I took a class for spinning and the teacher there taught both spinning and weaving. And so we were learning to spin in a room that was also the loom room. And there was probably hmm. like five, four or five floor looms that were in that room at the same time as we were learning to spin. And then also around the countertops around the entire room were all the table looms. So it was kind of like I was being surrounded. There was like, there was no way not to be intrigued by that and what people were able to make on a loom. Um, and so I remember my teacher kind of like coming up beside me and very gently and just saying, you need to learn how to weave. And it was, <laughs> it's just kind of like, it's, she was a very encouraging and enabling instructor. And so I think being kind of walking that path towards trying to be an instructor now too, I feel this desire to enable in the most gentle way, like, hey, you guys, you might want to learn how to weave because it's actually really fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Your story really resonates with me as someone who also fell down a rabbit hole of many different kinds of fibers. And you ultimately, as you mentioned at the beginning, started your own textile and fiber business. And I'm curious if you could talk about how your love of textiles ended up becoming your work as well. I know it's crazy. Um, I know when I was in high school, the guidance counselor probably had a very difficult time trying to help me find a path because I was interested in so many different things. And they all seemed very divergent. I mean, like my parents uh, were very, very creative people, but we're also very, we value academics and, uh, you know, education and all that kind of stuff. And so I really, really struggled between trying to find some kind of a career that was very academic and um, and something that I could do and be more creative. So I had gone to university to study pharmaceutical sciences. I was very unhappy doing that. Um, and then came out well, while I was at university, I started my own design firm and had already started to pick up clients and things like that. And, and over time, I, I found that the creativity that you could express in something like design work for clients was more limited than I originally thought. Um, and I kind of felt constrained in a lot of ways. Um, and so that's sort of when I picked up textiles again. So I picked up my knitting again, and then very quickly started going to nicer yarn stores that weren't Kmart, <laughs> mm -hmm. and discovered that there was this whole world of hand painted yarn, hand dyed yarn, and was very, very excited about it, but I couldn't afford any of it. So I started to learn about how to dye yarn, how to dye fiber, how to spin yarn, how to make my own yarn, all of these kinds of things. And it was very tactile. It was a way to express creativity and to just express what I wanted in a more 
tangible way and a more immediate way. Because, you know, sometimes when you're working on design projects for clients, they sometimes will not get realized for months at a time, three or six months, sometimes like a year until you can finally release it and say, okay, we finished building this thing. Um, so to have something that was immediate was wonderful. Hmm. And what was that step between dyeing your own yarn and then dyeing yarn for other people? Yeah, <laughs> I feel like that should have been more considered. It was a very kind of a quick step. Like now when I think back to it, it happened quite quickly. Um, I believe I learned how to die in about February, March of 2005. And then by September 2005, I had started a, a little kind of side business on Etsy. Hmm. And, um, you know, started dying from September onwards, just dyeing every weekend and then skeining yarn throughout the week, trying to take photos of the yarn throughout the week and then posting it and all of this kind of stuff. And uh, Etsy was just starting out in 2005. And so there was no ability to put more than one item into the Etsy shopping cart at one time. So you had to like buy and then check out and then buy and then check out. And so if anybody wanted to buy more than one skein, then I had to like somehow combine shipping and it was just like a big... Sure. Yeah, logistical e-commerce <laughs> nightmare. So I very quickly moved to setting up my own e-commerce store and um, trying to do, you know, like a timed update saying, oh, at Friday at this time, we're all going to, you know, go online and have this update and crashed my server. Like this happened multiple times, I think, where I'd say a time and then literally nobody could get on because everybody was trying to get on. And so I was like, oh, this is not working either. <laughs> it was it was just it was it was a bit challenging uh to get started but um but the 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 upside was that obviously people were really excited about it and really wanted the yarn so that was wonderful and very very rewarding so i want to talk more about how your business and your journey developed but first i want you to talk more about your yarn i'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with you and your company but if they're not you have just such a stunning and vivid use of color so many different colors in so many different ways and I'm just curious if you could talk about like how you developed that style and what it is that you love about color and how you bring that out in the products that you make. Absolutely. So when I started out, I was I was a hand dyeing. I hand dyed wool, and I have like uh, an affinity for silk. I love silk blends. So wool and silk, and so I was dyeing with acid dyes. I personally really like. Um, bold and vibrant colors, colors that make you just, you, you indulge in these colors. You actually really like these colors, but you're scared to wear them. <laughs> you're mm -hmm. scared. Like there, there's, there's kind of like a limit. There's a point where you feel a little bit nervous about being that in love with color. Um, and I just, I still want to provide colors for people, um, that sort of push people a little bit to that edge. Of course we provide much more muted and um, wearable colors and things like that. But I feel like people really do love color, but they're just sometimes a little bit scared. And um, so, you know, we provide something like 16 different kinds of yarn right now. So it fluctuates, like we bring in different yarn bases all the time. And um, so it fluctuates between about 16 to 20 different kinds of yarn bases. Um, so there's like sock yarns, there's heavier weight yarns, worsted weight yarns, bulky weight yarns sometimes, lace weight yarns. 
And then within all of those yarns, we also do a bunch of different kinds of fibers. So a lot of wool blends, a lot of silk blends, cashmere blends. Now we also do some linen and silk blends. So it's really fun to dye on all of these yarns. They make beautiful canvases for the color, but then we also dye fiber. And I think that that's something that people have not always known, even though I started dyeing fiber before I started dyeing yarn. But we've always provided spinning fiber from the very, very beginning. So there's like blue face luster and silk. Um, there's like Polworth and silk. There's a whole bunch of different blends. I think we do five different blends right now. Yeah. And what, uh, for the weavers who are listening, what are, what are the yarns that are best for people who are weaving on rigid heddle looms or multi-shaft looms? What, what do you and your customers use for weaving? So there is um, a yarn that I personally love for weaving, and it's the Merino Silk Lace. And so it's a lace weight yarn, obviously. It's about 765 yards per skein, 100 gram skein. And it is 50% merino and 50% silk. And it just makes everything drapey and beautiful and Mm. soft. But even softer than that one is another one that we have that's called Cash Silk Lace. And that's silk and cashmere blend and also lace weight. And just using that as weft makes everything soft and squishy and cozy and warm and yeah, I love those too. Um, I do use a lot of our sock yarn as well. We have Tough Love Sock, which is merino and nylon blend sock yarn. And that just works up into basically everything. And we also have another sock yarn called Bulletproof Sock, which has a little bit of mohair in it and a little bit of silk in it. And so it makes for a very strong yarn. And um, talking to other weavers that are in our community, they've used this yarn set just at 12 ends per inch. They're just like, it just it works you know rigid heddle multi-shaft loom whatever you want to do with it 12 ends per inch and it's good to go wonderful that's great and so what was the process like as you you know I'm sure as you transitioned from dyeing a little bit of yarn to dyeing a lot of yarn all at once and moving into being a production dyer how did you find that your experience your relationship with fiber and with dyes changed as, as as that became more and more of your work yeah, there's lots and lots of things to consider. I mean, when I first started, it was it's was just me. It was me dying at my dining room table, and then it was me dying in my basement, and then it was me dying in my other like space. It was just it was very very challenging to scale up because growth doesn't happen in that very gradual straight line. It happens in these big stair steps, and each stair step is terrifying mm-hmm. um so i remember getting my very first studio space outside of the house and how much it, like exactly how much it cost for rent i had found it on craigslist it was amazing but i i was just waking up in cold sweat every night because i was worried about not being able to make rent i was like oh my god what have i done um and then you know gradually growing in that space until we could no longer fit in that space anymore we had like we had a team of, I think by that time we had maybe five people and there was nowhere to walk in that studio space anymore. So we had to go to the next stair step. And again, that was like a bigger, I think we went double the size and then, you know, (laughs) everything was just double. It was just, it was terrifying. So Mm -hmm. that's a little bit of the process, but then also understanding um, that you can't just always die what you want. Uh, you can't always just die whatever you feel like. That um, that there needs to be a little bit of a cohesive 
lightness to the whole thing. So I remember my aunt, uh, my mom's sisters, both of them are, uh, they live in Taiwan, but they work back and forth between Taiwan and China. And they're both entrepreneurs as well. And so they've had a long, long, long history in business. And I remember inviting them to come down to my first studio. And so they saw what I was doing. They saw all my yarn. And they're like, "You're, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, but now you need to bring it together and make it like a they didn't use the word collection. Well, they're speaking Chinese, but um, Mm -hmm. they didn't use the word collection, but kind of like to make it cohesive, to make it all go together, to make it like it's all meant to go together, not just this one color and then that one random color and that one random color, but that they all become a palette. And so from that point on, I started to create the colorways as a palette so that they would work together and that they look like they should go together. Um, And I think that sort of from there, that's where we started to develop a lot of the signature sort of sweet Georgia colors and things like that and come up with this palette. And like you said, like we have a lot of colors. We grew our sort of color recipe database to about what, like 300 colors or something like that. And then we recently, maybe two years ago, streamlined it back down to 80 core colors that we consider our core palette now and now we also continue to develop new colors but they're only available on a seasonal basis so we do like a fall winter collection and we do a spring and summer collection and those rotate every year so I'm so curious how you taught yourself to think of color in collections is it something that comes naturally to you or did you learn it in specific ways and do you have any advice for people who are wanting to get better either just in their own work or in in business um, in terms of thinking about color. Hmm. Yeah, so I think that it does come from my background. I um like I said at the very beginning, like I was really frustrated about being in pharmacy school and all that kind of stuff. And I, I feel like, oh, that was such a waste of time. But in fact, no time is ever wasted. And so I had gone to pharmacy school and then I had all of this design work background. And I feel like um, a lot of my color sense came from that time where I spent time doing client work, client uh, design communications for clients because basically the whole point of any sort of graphic design project is to communicate something on behalf of a client so those colors that you pick for a project for a brochure for a website all of those colors have to say something about the client it's communicating something and so that's the same way that I approach each one of these color collections when we when we put colors together and present them. It's what is the story that we're trying to tell? What is the message that we're trying to share with this particular collection? What do we want people to feel and taste and sense when they look at these colors? And that's how we start to pull together the colors. And it's kind of like an understanding of color theory, but color psychology, understanding what colors mean to people, how they make people feel, and just all of that information together to present something that's more cohesive. Hmm. What were your biggest learning curves early on in your business and then also later on in your business? Oh, I think hiring people. Hmm. (laughs) That is, uh, that was very, um, that was a big learning for, for me, for sure, because I'd always worked on my own. And so hiring your first staff, not knowing really how to be a boss and trying to figure that out as you're being a boss that's a bit tricky. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And was that, so how early on in your business were you, were you hiring? Uh, I think I hired my first person in about 2009. So I started in 2005. So I had done, um, I had done 
many years on my own. And then I totally burnt out by doing it all on my own and then came back and realized that in order to do this work, I have to do it with other people. Like it cannot be something that I just do entirely by myself. Um, yeah, I think that that that's a bit of a learning curve too, like realizing that you can't do it all, that it's just everything is so much better when you work together with other people. Mm -hmm. And what does yeah. your team look like now? Our team is, it fluctuates again, like somewhere between 12 to 16 people, uh, depending on the season, depending on, you know, if people are going back to school, all sorts of things like that. So yeah, right now we're about 12 people. And so we have a production manager who manages sort of all the yarns coming in, what needs to get dyed, when it needs to get dyed. And he like works with a team of dyers who do all of the production dyeing. Um, and then we have uh, Teresa. She is originally our production manager. And then um, she went away on maternity leave. And when she went away on maternity leave, her husband came in and hmm. was our production manager. And then when she came back from maternity leave, she was like, oh, Hubert's doing a really good job at this. So I'm going to do something else. So <laughs> now she's doing our sort of our sales operations and managing a lot of things to do with our e-commerce website. Hmm. And as well, we have like... Um, uh, Bridget, who handles a lot of our wholesale orders, and she also does uh, our marketing and uh, writing our email newsletters and things like that. And of course, Tabitha, who is our design director now, and she handles everything to do with knitwear design patterns. And the, these all of these jobs were all things that I was doing myself. And I just, I cannot even imagine um, continuing on in that way. Hmm. For some reason, I had written at the very beginning when I was starting to reformulate my business, I thought, oh, I could dye all the yarn and enter everything in the computer and also be the bookkeeper <laughs> and also do all the marketing and all the social media and also be a knitwear designer and write patterns and have them tested. It just, yeah, it yeah. was crazy. Totally, totally. How did your own relationship with the craft and your own love of of the hobby of knitting and weaving and spinning change as it was also your business? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I kind of feel like it hasn't changed. Hmm. I still love it. I still knit every day. Um, I feel like it's given me more focus in a lot of ways because like the things that I knit, I knit for myself, of course, and I'm choosing patterns for myself, but I'm also using our yarns. And in some ways it sets some boundaries and I think it makes my life easier in a lot of ways. Like um, if you're a knitter or you're a weaver and you're going on to Ravelry or you're looking through Handwoven Magazine, you're looking at all of the all of the patterns that could be made and all of the yarns that could be worked with and just everything, it's overwhelming. Um, and so I think by me saying that I'm using yarns that I've dyed or yarns from our collections or uh, yarns that I've spun, it already creates this very natural boundary. And within that, I feel like I can make tons of creative decisions. And I don't feel limited, but at the same time, I don't need to expose myself to every single thing out there and overwhelm myself creatively. Hmm. So in addition to everything that you've mentioned so far, you also host a podcast. Oh, um, yes. Which if people have not heard of, they will love. And we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, I, I love listening to your podcast and, and hearing all the people that you talk to and about their stories. What inspired you to start that podcast? And what have you learned from doing it? 
Oh, yes. So I started my podcast, um, I think, in between my two babies. And, um, or maybe it was just shortly after Nina was born. But it was basically because I was feeling um, a little bit isolated. I was feeling a little bit um, disconnected. And because, you know, I was at home, I have my two wonderful kids, but I'm at home a lot. And I didn't feel like I necessarily, like I'm not scrolling through Instagram and participating in a lot of conversations and things like that. And I, I wasn't really able to go out and travel. And so I'm not going to workshops. I'm not going to conferences. I'm not seeing people. And so having this podcast was a way for me to connect with people that I really, really admire in the industry. And specifically, people who had families and who were running their their careers and their businesses. And for me to kind of like ask them, how do they do it? Um, it was really, yeah, it was a way to con- reconnect with the community and to get to know a lot of these heroes a little bit better and to find out how people do what they do. Because I find it endlessly fascinating and to be able to incorporate things that they do into 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 my life. What are some of your favorite episodes that people can go check out? Oh, there are so many. Hmm. Um I mean, I I had a I feel like a very eye opening conversation with Marianne Moody, hmm. so I really really enjoyed that. I also had a conversation with Kay Facet that um, I just I'm a huge admirer and fan of his, and I mean like I've spoken with a number of weavers like Sarah Lamb and Liz Gibson, and um, even like more recently, uh, she's a knitter, she's a knitwear designer, Andrea Rangel, um, she just came out with a book called alternate which is like a whole bunch of color work patterns and it's a color work reference library sort of thing but uh, a very interesting thing that she talked about that um that that i i've been carrying with me ever since we had this conversation was this idea of you know how to prevent burnout and to work on projects that are not necessarily things for your business but things that are just outside of your business and so you can enjoy your craft without feeling like you're constantly working so yeah, that's just something really simple that I just picked up from our conversation with Andrea that, yeah, I've really enjoyed. Hmm. And you've started to dive a lot more into teaching recently. Um, tell me about that and what you're teaching and how and where you teach and how people can get involved. Yeah, so I'm teaching all the things. <laughs> I um, <Love> it. <laughs> Two years ago, I started a, a, an online school called the School of Sweet Georgia. So it is a uh, online website. It's a membership space where we come and there's new content being released every week, at least every month. And that new content is about teaching dyeing. It's about teaching spinning. It's about teaching weaving. Um, there's going to be more knitting content, all of this kind of stuff. So um, last year in the year before we'd released dyeing courses about how to dye with acid dyes and this summer I'm going to be releasing content about dyeing with fiber reactive dyes but basically all of this sort of happened because I was trying to find a way to again connect with the community and reach out and sort of be there and be able to teach um, but without necessarily having to leave my family and go anywhere Um, before I had had my kids I taught in-person classes at Plastes Arts which is like it's a it's an art space in Coquitlam just outside the lower mainland of Vancouver and um, it was great I taught spinning and dying there and I would go every week 
twice a week for about 10 weeks at a time. And each time it took about 45 minutes, if not an hour to drive there and back. And it was just really, really, um, in, in a lot of ways, very demanding, just time time-wise and uh, energy-wise. And um, so I had to give that up when I had my kids. And uh, I've always kind of been trying to find a way back to that. And then in 2017, I published my book, Dying to Spin and Knit. And following the book, I also got a lot of requests to come out and teach and teach dying and things like that. And I was just like, I can't go anywhere. I can't leave. And so making the School of Sweet Georgia was my way of being able to be out there and teaching and uh, providing this access to content and knowledge and information uh, where, you know, a lot of times our students can't travel either. Our members can't really make it out to every conference and meet all the teachers and things like that. So this is like a long-term ongoing project for me to build the content in the school, to build this platform and to have it as a place where everybody can come to learn the fiber arts in a very deep just a very deep knowledge kind of way. Um, so it's not always going to be me teaching forever and ever. I'm teaching a number of courses, but I'm also pulling together a faculty or like a, a teaching team of people. And so we have uh, Rachel Smith from Welford Pearl. She does a podcast called Woolen Spinning. And so she's coming in to teach some spinning content for later on this year. Um, we've had Katrina Stewart from Crafty Jacks, who she makes hand-dyed yarns, hand-dyed fibers, hand-carded bats. And she does a lot of spinning teaching for us at the studio as well. So she's t teaching some content. Um, and then we are working with another weaver, Jana Maria Valley, um, tapestry weaver. So we're going to be filming a class with her as well. And just basically pulling together a whole bunch of um, really fantastic teachers to provide content that is of their expertise, like what they're experts in. Hmm. So where can people go online and on social media to follow you and your company and your podcast and your yarn and your school? For sure. So the Sweet Georgia is at uh, sweetgeorgiayarns.com is our website. Instagram is Sweet Georgia. And then the school is schoolofsweetgeorgia.com. And the Instagram is schoolofsweetgeorgia. And I'm also doing a lot of weaving. And I thought it might be best to start my own feed. So I created my own Instagram feed for just the things that I'm personally weaving. And that's at Low Meets Loom. Nice. And I'm wondering if you have any closing advice for weavers and other textiles out there. Oh, just do it. <laughs> you got to get out there. Just try it. I know um, that weaving seems like it's really daunting and... Um, yeah, it just seems like this big mountain to climb. But once you're in it, it's so much fun. And I'm just so excited about this other way to use yarn and to create textiles that feel different and work differently. And just, it's just, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm the one who's in the water, in the ocean, and I'm paddling around. I'm like, hey, guys, come on in. The water's really good. <laughs> and I just want to encourage everybody to give it a try. And so that's part of the thing that I try to encourage through the school. It's to try to make things as simple as possible, to make things as accessible as possible, and to try to bring more people into the fold. Because I think once they're in there, they're just going to be down the rabbit hole, as you and I have been. Indeed, indeed. Well, Felicia, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and to share the story of your textile journey and your business journey. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sarah.
That's a wrap. To see photos of Felicia's absolutely stunning yarn, as well as links to her website and podcast, please visit our show notes at www.gistyarn.com slash episode hyphen 69. That's G-I-S-T-Y-A-R-N dot com slash episode hyphen 69. Next week on the podcast, LaShawn is talking with Stephanie L. Ondo. Stephanie is a sustainable natural fiber artist who creates wool felt sculptures, hand spun yarns, and one of a kind botanically dyed textiles. She is the founder of Slow Fiber Studio, a project named after her married initials SLO, which can be read as slow, a hopeful word in a world that often moves too fast. So stay tuned for that fascinating episode next Monday. And until next time, happy weaving!